Lord, we uh, continue to pray for our country and our leaders and just pray that you would continue to protect them and give them wisdom and guidance, particularly those that know you and that they may be able to have an influence in decisions that are made. And we pray that you would strengthen, equip them to do the things that you would have them to do for for us and for the rest of the country. So we praise you for them and desire this morning as well that as we open up your word, once again, we don't want to take it for granted that it's not an ordinary book. We know that it has spiritual dimensions that we cannot see apart from your illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. We desire that work to not be hindered in any way this morning. We desire to be in fellowship with you. If there's anything that is blocking that sin, particularly, that we would confess that and rejoin fellowship with you. This morning, we want to see you working amongst us. We don't want to just have another Bible study. We want to see how it impacts us and how we can utilize your word to have an impact in the culture we live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, this morning we're back in the book of Romans, and it's not surprising that when we look at the world around us, that at every turn we are in conflict even in the most basic and fundamental areas of thinking or thought, particularly when it comes to truth. And what I thought we were we would do, since this passage is so fundamental and starts off dealing with the area of truth in verse 18, there's a mention of it, but I think it permeates the whole passage, actually. I'll, I'll show you that in a moment. <coughs> But I thought it'd be good to take a look at what is the biblical basis or the biblical teaching on truth itself. Now, this is so fundamental that oftentimes we don't think about it. But if you're aware that the world is very, very different in its thinking, and particularly concerning knowledge, concerning truth, concerning reality, that it's good to take a look at that. So that's going to be the focus of what we'll look at this morning. So we're still, obviously, in the book of Romans. We're still in verse 18. I think we've been there for a while, but we've looked at some fundamental things. And we're in the section that deals with Paul's beginning of his theological exposition, chapter 1, verse 18, through the end of chapter 8, where he's going to talk about the provision of God's righteousness. But we need to understand some basic things before we can understand what he's getting at here. And he starts off, we've spent a few weeks on the idea of condemnation. Mankind is under the wrath of God. So we had to explain what that means because, again, even within the church, a lot of Christians don't have a grasp of that. So we looked at the guilt of humanity, and I think this passage deals with all of humanity in general. It's true of every person that has ever lived. And we're guilty primarily because man has rejected God. So he's going to develop that thesis with a series of arguments. And we're looking at 18 and 19 where God has revealed himself. We're going to expand that. And we're going to see some reasons why that wrath of God is in fact poured out on humanity. In verse 18, we looked at it. We have the revelation of God's wrath. That's the first part of verse 18. And then we're going to focus in verse 19 on reasons. There's a two-part idea in verse 18 and 19 taken together. One sentence. 
So, summary of the whole passage. Man is under wrath. That's the beginning, and that's only verse 18. And we're going to look at the last part of that, focus on it. Then he's going to spend from verse 19, the middle of the sentence, and it's going to go actually through the end of verse 23, laying out why man is under wrath, the reasons. And remember, he's arguing like a lawyer in court, so he's got to present the case. It's a detailed case, but it's logical, and you you follow it, and we'll look at it in some detail. And then he's going to show that uh, God's wrath can be seen or it's displayed because he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed, present tense. So we should be able to observe it. And beginning in verse 24 through the end of the chapter, we have the rendering of God's wrath or the pouring out of that wrath, if you want to use that word, where you can visibly see how God, through history and even present day, pours out that wrath in a present tense, ongoing sense. And in our little discussion on the wrath of God, we've seen historically, particularly biblically, examples of drastic times when God has poured out wrath, for example, the Genesis flood, in a massive way. But it's an ongoing thing. God dealing with sins. You need to understand the concept. God is dealing with sin. He must judge. It's part of the way things are set up in the universe. So we'll hopefully someday get there. Not making any promises. So verses 18 and 19, I've said is the complete sentence. Just a quick review here. And if you break down the sentence, the main clause for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Wrath is revealed, subject, main verb. From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We've looked at that already. And when you break it down, you find out wrath is the subject. Is revealed is the verb. And we've looked at verse 18. I've broken down into seven parts where we have the divine nature of wrath. We spent two weeks on what is that all about. And we briefly commented that it's in the present tense. The idea is the ongoing sense, present time. The source is from heaven itself. Text tells us that. And we spent last week looking at the comprehensive extent of this wrath. In other words, all mankind. No one is excluded. Everyone that's a sinner. It's upon sinful objects, this wrath. And one of the reasons is because we suppress the truth. That's part of the nature of man under wrath. And I'm going to kind of camp on that little phrase there. We're going to look at it and the idea of truth because our culture has that all mixed up. So we're going to look at the little phrase, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What does that mean? How does that appear? Uh, how do we experience that? Because all of us do, in fact, to some extent, have in the past. And even now, in the flesh, we have a tendency to disregard, at least, which is a way of suppressing the truth. So that's kind of what we're going to look at. So we're going to look at the issue of truth today. And this is very, very important because it's so fundamental to everything else. What is your attitude towards truth? <laughs> This is the beginning of why we have conflicts with the unbelieving world or why they have conflicts with us. We see things totally different from an unbeliever. 
and maybe you ought to think through yourself, do you have a biblical view of truth and knowledge? And if you've grown up in this culture, then without even knowing it, you've been absorbing the ideas of the world, and I'm going to lay out some of them, so that you can be aware of them. And now you can see them. You'll see them in the media. You'll see them in education. You'll see it all around. If you go to college, you'll see it on the college campus. There's a different view of knowledge and truth. We want to have a biblical view, and that's what I've got laid out on our outline sheet there. The issue of truth. So, first of all, the nature of truth. This is fundamental. Can anyone summarize at least maybe some attitudes in our culture concerning truth? What is the nature of truth in the thinking of somebody, if you just went down the street and asked them? And if they were an unbeliever, what would they respond? How would they respond? Linda. Okay, one of the things they would say is truth is relative, and maybe that's your idea. Uh If so, we need to kind of reorient and renew your thinking on that. It it comes from... Go ahead. It comes from science. I mean, it's got to be science, right? Okay, it comes out of science, so it's naturalistic. Very good. That's a common idea. In other words, if science doesn't say it, then it's not true. If you can't prove it scientifically, then probably it's just an opinion. It's probably not true. That's a viewpoint. Anything else that you can grasp from culture? Connie? And I would say not just like, that may be for you. Yes. It's me. Absolutely. And that's the relative idea in terms of a personal attitude. Exactly. But actually, this passage is full of the idea of truth, not just the suppressing of it. The whole idea at least all the way to verse 23, if I remember right. I'm going to just review it and highlight some of the words related to truth to show you that this passage is dealing with this whole concept. And as a result, it gives us a lot of insight into the true nature of truth. For example, even from the beginning, for the wrath of God is revealed, the idea of something being revealed, what's revealed, knowledge or truth. You have to have something to reveal before something can be said to be revealed, is revealed. And then we saw the suppression of truth, so we'll look at that idea specifically. And then in verse 19, because that which is known, in other words, to know something, knowledge, truth about God is evident. It's understood. This truth can be known, can be understood. It's evident within them. And this is key here. God made it evident. In other words, God put within mankind certain truths that are there inherently. Interesting. This is a very important passage. So just in this first sentence, there's at least five different words relating to the idea of truth. And if you go to the next verse, verse 20 For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen or perceived. You could even say understood, not just observable, but things that you can understand clearly. And then it adds to that being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Two more references to the idea of truth. Verse 20. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, knowledge, knowing, truth, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their what? Evaluation or speculating or thinking about something, thinking about truth in their speculations and in their foolish heart was darkened in relationship to truth. So this passage is full of the idea of truth and knowledge. So it's good at the very beginning to take a look at that because we'll build on this foundation and we need to reorient our thinking in terms of how the world approaches it and be aware because you'll be talking, you'll be sharing the gospel, you'll be sharing truth with the unbeliever and you need to realize as you're sharing these words, they're processing the words that you're sharing, the truth that you're experiencing and they're doing different things with it. In some cases, they're just ignoring you. In some cases, they're saying, well, I don't want to believe that. In some cases, they're saying, well, truth doesn't even exist. And that's an attitude. So, this whole idea, and even in verse 22, professing to be wise, there's another word. Wisdom. How do you handle knowledge? We categorize that as wisdom. But, professing to be wise, they became fools. The idea of foolish, that's related to the idea of knowledge. So this passage is full, and this is the basis upon which God puts man under wrath. How do you handle truth? What do you do with it? And a basic feature or a basic element of what mankind is all about is we have the inward tendency to suppress it, suppressing truth. So let's take a look at that. Excuse me. Hmm? That thing was darkened. Say that again. Was darkened. Yep. They're they became fools. Darkened. Does that mean God? Um, to like, some extent. If you go that way, you kind of be, because mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. In fact, that is part of this idea of the wrath of God. There are consequences to what we do yeah. with revelation, with truth. So there is an element of God involved in the darkening process. And I don't know exactly how he does that, but it works itself out. We'll see some of that when we get to that verse. That's months away, right? So the main thing I want you to see here is this idea of truth is so fundamental, so important. In fact, the writers of Scripture, particularly Paul in this example, assumes that we understand what truth is all about. In our culture, that's not a very good assumption because the whole idea of truth is totally distorted. So let's take a look at that and let's ask the same question that somebody in the Bible asked when when speaking with Jesus. This is the question. Anyone remember who asked that? Pilate. Yeah, Pilate, when he had Jesus on trial, Jesus laid out some truths. In fact, he's talking about truth. Pilate says, what is truth? He had a 21st attitude towards truth. What is that attitude? So let's take a look at that. There's today what's called postmodernism. It's a whole philosophy, a whole set of thoughts that begins with the idea of truth. And one of the fundamental things about it, I pulled a quote out from, actually I found it, obviously on the internet, on a slide, imported it. This is a basic thesis or a basic idea of postmodern thinking. And a lot of people that obviously are in the culture, this kind of 
is passed on without, you know, you don't need an instructor or a teacher. It just kind of goes through the culture because this is so common. The idea there is no truth. In fact, there's a denial, postmodernism, one of the elements of it is a denial of the reality of truth. Instead, there is only perception. And I could give you a lot of other quotes, but I don't want to get off on too many rabbit trails here. Just to illustrate, this is out there. This is an attitude. This is an idea that you really cannot know truth. That truth really does not exist. It's more just what's happening in your mind and you're just kind of impressed by certain things and you're perceiving certain things, but whether or not it's real or not, nobody knows. That's postmodernism. Jeremy. And it is true we can't know truth on our own. It has to be revealed. To well, we'll get, yeah, we'll get to that. You're Sorry. always one step ahead of me. Yeah, always one step ahead of me, always. So modernism is... Postmodernism. Well... I have to prove it with rational... Not so much post or modernism, but more the biblical idea goes totally against that. We'll, we'll get to that as well. There's also relativism. This is what Connie was talking about, which is actually a subset and related to postmodernism, the idea, and I captured this one as well, these are all over the place, so it's not hard to find them, the idea that your truth and my truth may not be the same. In other words, it kind of floats around. What you think is true, or what you perceive as truth, may be very, very different from what I perceive as truth. That's relativism. So your truth is just as valid, they would say, as my truth. So if you believe in God, that's okay for you. But if I don't want to believe in God, that's okay for me. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. In fact, don't judge me. And I won't judge you. I'll let you believe in a God if you want to, even though I think he doesn't exist. That's relativism. Okay? That's very common today. In fact, you almost hear it stated just like this. That's why it's on the slide. Linda. My, my friends say that their truth is the truth. So, I mean, this is an absolute. Your truth. Yes. Wait. That <laughs> I'm not true because I believe it. Yeah. They, they don't Well, they have, violate their they own. They don't have this their, They re, violate yeah. their own relativism. Right. And that's the have, inconsistency of it. Yeah, they have a, they have a, a truth statement. Yes. That all things are relative. Right. That's true. That's what they say. If that's true... And that's the fallacy of it. It's not relative. Right. And that's the way to confront these people. When when they tell you something like that, you can say, well, that idea is not true. I mean, how do you know... I mean, you're saying that even... Because my truth says your idea is not true. And if my idea is true, then uh, it negates your idea. Does it come back to the science of Because my truth might not be right, or your truth might not be right, but the science will actually show what is the truth. So, well, not only science, but something else as well. Yeah, we'll get to that. Okay. So these are common things, and we can talk some more and go off on tangents on these, but I'm just kind of raising your consciousness, and you've heard people say certain things related to what we've looked at here. So... Postmodernism, relativism, but there's also a biblical view of truth. And first of all, and science is based, in fact, science came out of a biblical worldview. Modern science came out of Bible-believing scientists 
that took biblical principles and a biblical view of knowledge and truth and began to make observations on the physical world. That's where modern science historically came from. Now, even modern science today has departed from that biblical basis. So a biblical view is that truth is real in contrast to postmodernism. There is such a thing as truth. And the passage that we just looked at makes that clear because it keeps referring to something that is real. I mean, it doesn't emphasize that point, but it assumes the idea of the reality of truth, that you can understand certain things. You can know certain things. Some things can be revealed that are not known. The idea that there is a body of truth. But because we start, oftentimes in our culture, from the idea that there's no God, then it's logical to think that there's no reality behind truth. All right? So it starts with a biblical worldview. It's also objective. In other words, your truth not, it has nothing to do with the reality of truth. It is objective. It's outside of man. So it's not subjective. There is a reality that God has set forth. There are certain things that the Creator has built into the creation, truth being one of them. And He's built us in such a way that we can perceive it. He's given us a, a mind to be able to evaluate and process what He has put out there. So it's objective. And He's built within us, this is where it comes from, and this is part of the biblical worldview. Connie, do you have a comment? I was just going to say, knowable, exactly. Right. There are several things that we'll get into. Exactly. So it's objective, and to know truth, we have to understand what the Bible says about you and I, that we are created in the image of God. And if we are created in the image of God, there is an omniscient source of knowledge. And that is denied, obviously, by the culture that we live in. But that's a starting point. The origin of truth and knowledge is God himself, who knows all things. He is the source of all knowledge that comes from him. Make sense? There's an omniscient source. In other words, all of knowledge, God knows, and he is the source of all knowledge, and then we take steps from there. He created man in his image with the ability to handle knowledge and to receive knowledge, to evaluate knowledge, and to sort it out even. So he's built within us a rational capacity that comes from him. In other words, part of the image of God is the ability to be able to handle truth and knowledge. Thirdly, he structured our minds to be able to process knowledge, to receive it, to recognize it, to know it, to be convinced. Another thing that we can say that some of you have said is that knowledge must be revealed. So, biblically, knowledge is conveyed. It has to come from a, a source. It has to come from that uh, omniscient source. It's It is revealed. So apart from revelation, we have no basis for truth. That's why our world that rejects God has no basis, and in fact, in some areas, denies even its existence and or says that it's 
changeable, relative. There's no absolutes here. And in fact, that that is revealed is absolute. Absolute truth. What science does, it, it stumbles onto using man's rational thoughts, rational thinking, to be able to discover some of those things that are unchanging. But even in science, the nature of science is over time science changes. Because we get more data, find out more things. But the source is as a result of revelation. So that source, even though we may not totally perceive it, is absolute. And when we say absolute, we mean it's unchanging. That that comes from God is unchanging. It is, in fact, not perceivable. In other words, if it comes by revelation, we don't have the capacity to know it apart from him revealing it. So we can't discover it. So it doesn't change. It's eternal. It's inerrant. In other words, there's no errors in it. That's what we mean by absolute. And there's other qualities as well. So he's given us, by structuring our minds, the ability to understand truth. That's why he can say in verse 19, because that which is known, the ability to know certain things. In other words, the reality of knowledge, the reality of truth. Make sense? That which is known about God is evident. We'll get into that. We'll look at that word there. Is manifest. In other words, you you can observe it. It's observable. Make sense? And he gives us the reason for that. God has made it manifest or made it evident or made it visible, you could even say. So he's given us the ability to understand truth. So that's the nature of truth. Let's read John 18, 37 and 38, because here's where the question arises. Who wants to read that one? Who's got it? Jeremy's got it? John 18, this is the passage that I started with in terms of Pilate. Maybe Connie's got it. Alright, go Connie. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? You say rightly. You say rightly. In other words, you have an accurate observation of truth. Go ahead. For this cause I was into the world. Now he's laying out truth there. Keep reading. He bears witness to the truth. Absolute truth. Keep reading. Everyone who is of the truth hears what is truth. Okay, so he asks the question, what is truth? Skeptically, is it real? Is it relative? Does it make a difference? What is truth? Jesus has just laid out there is truth. And he is manifesting that truth or displaying that truth. It does exist. And he's testifying to it because it comes from him. And it's revelatory. In other words, this is something that Pilate could not discover using a scientific or any other method. Make sense? I actually, you know, DNA. Yes. He, he said that if man keeps going like this route, Arrive at the truth. He so discovered DNA, there. and he still died. Yeah, but he's really well. The reason the passage keep tells us: thinking, keep thinking, and thinking, and thinking. Then you'll arrive. Yep, and there's passages that we'll look at dealing with that, particularly the Romans 18 passage, because the heart of man that rejects God automatically re- uh, suppresses that truth, the essential truth. But, that, but that's all of us. Yes. And yes. Only, you know, for years, you know, 
and, and crying out to God, but he, my truth. And it wasn't until I accepted him as my Lord, he revealed to me. Yes. It wasn't me. That's right. And that's always the case. Very good. Very good. So that's the nature of truth and the source of truth. Let's look up one passage here. In fact, you got that one since you're in John already, Jeremy? And all of you are probably familiar with 14.6, John 14.6. Yep. Keep that in your thinking. And somebody else look up 1 John 5.7. Who's got that one? In fact, we ought to read Colossians 2.3 as well. Who wants to do Colossians 2.3? Ellen's got it. Who's got John 3? You got it, Jeremy? He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. Okay, God is true. That's absolute truth. God is eternal. God is unchanging. God is absolute truth. Truth is embodied in God. He's not only the source, but that verse says God is true. He is truth. And the scriptures are full of little phrases that speak of the truth of God or God as true. And then there's passages like Hebrews 6.18. It is impossible for God to lie. There's some things in terms of God that are impossible, and it's impossible for him to lie, kind of the antithesis of truth. And several verses referring to God relating to truth, but he is truth. John 14, 6, you can quote it. What did Jesus say? He is the, the truth and the life. Jesus is the truth. The Father is true. That's a... Quotation out of uh, John 3.33. John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. We've got Colossians, what did I give you? 2.3. This is referring to Jesus Christ, who's got it. All right. All the treasures of him. All the treasures of what? Wisdom Wisdom and knowledge. In other words, all truth is embodied in Jesus Christ. So truth is personal. Truth comes from God. Because God is true, Jesus is true, and if the Father is truth, and the Son is truth, what would you expect? The Holy Spirit. That's 1 John 5, 7. Who's got that one? Read it. There are three that test the Spirit and the water and Okay, doesn't it make that phrase? My version says, the spirit of truth. How does your version put it? Doesn't, doesn't include that. There are three to Yeah. But it, but it refers to the spirit of truth. In other words, the spirit that embodies truth. So essentially, truth comes not only from the Father, but the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they are the embodiment of truth. So truth is personal. An attribute of God is that he is truth. And now he communicates that to his creatures. And when he does that, that's absolute truth. We may not always understand it. We may not always perceive it. We have a tendency of distorting it. But at least it is there. And it is real. And it's objective. It's outside of man. Make sense? So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. His word is truth. That's how he communicates truth. 
or at least the main way, is through his word. Even the gospel message, that's why it has power. Uh, there's a passage referring to the truth of the gospel. If you want that one, that one would be Ephesians 1.13 or Galatians 2.14. Truth of the gospel. So the source of truth is God himself. And the means by which he, one of the primary means, we call that special revelation, is through his word. Jesus himself says, thy word, in a prayer to the Father, thy word is truth. The word of God is absolute truth. That means it is inerrant. It is unchanging. It is real. It is eternal. It is without error because it is absolute truth. That's different from scientific truth. Scientific truth changes as we discover more data. We might have one theory today that can be overturned with more data, more information, more observations. Scientific truth is not necessarily absolute. It attempts to get there, but finite man can't get there apart from revelation. Revelatory truth or truth that comes from God is absolute. His word is absolute. That's why we want to be careful with it, and that's why we take pains with it. That's why we take time with it, because we believe that it is eternal truth. It is absolute. It is inerrant. It is inspired. That's the biblical view of truth. Thy word is truth, John 17, 17. We could also say, in relationship to Satan, what does the Bible say about Satan? Who wants to look up John 8, 44? Very clear passage. Somebody else get Romans 3, 4. Who's got, somebody got it? Russ, you got 8, 44? I got 8, 44. And somebody, Romans, Bob's got Romans 3, 4. Go ahead. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. Now, he's talking to Jewish leaders here, and he's saying they are of the devil, basically. Mm-hmm. Keep reading. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. There's no truth in him. He's devoid of absolute truth. He's devoid <laughs> of real truth. Keep reading. When he lies, he speaks his native language. Okay. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Okay, that's Satan himself. There's no truth in him. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's a murderer. No truth in Satan. What about man and truth? Romans 3, 4. Bob. May it never be, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your word and prevail when you are loved. Man in his natural state is a liar. We're liars by nature. Let God be true. God is true. In other words, let your thinking and your acknowledgement concerning God, let that be true because that is reality. Men are liars because of sin. And there's other verses as well that kind of give us this idea could read on in Romans 3, after that passage, 10 and 12, there is none righteous, not even one, there is none who understands. We have an inability to even grasp absolute truth. We can't understand it. 
there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. This is part of Paul's <laughs> argument. He's going to build. This is getting close to his conclusion concerning the nature of man and why man is under wrath. So that's mankind. And there's some other verses. I think they have them on another slide. So when uh, 18 says that man is under wrath, the wrath of God, referring to man who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, that's what we do. We are suppressors of the truth. Now let's take a closer look at this word suppress. And I've got the Greek word up there for you, just for those of you that are Greek students. If you do a word study, look up all of the usages, and it occurs 17 times in the New Testament. Most of the usages has the idea of holding on to something firmly or tightly, or to keep something. But it also, in context like this one, you hold on to something in a way of holding it down or pressing it down. That's where we get the idea of suppressing it. That also is part of the word. Suppressing truth. It's part of the distorting of truth is supporting, uh, suppressing that that is true. Not telling the positives in terms of an administration they're against. Suppression of the truth. So that's the word. And I've got a series of words here to kind of describe how we do that. We can detach. Sometimes we are detached from the truth. We ignore it, in other words, or avoid it. And when we speak of absolute truth, we have a tendency of not to read it. We avoid what God has said. It takes effort. It takes planning to spend time in God's word. That is a form of suppression. And the unbeliever avoids it altogether. Totally detached. Or we deny it. In other words, we argue with God. How can this be true? We want to think things our way or make things real in terms of how we perceive things. So sometimes we deny what is true. Or we distort it. That's the false teacher. Person that makes the word of God say things that it really does not say. That misinterprets it. Sometimes that is a distortion. Or we might know it or understand it and read it, but we depart from it. That's apostates. That's how we suppress it. Or we may be fully aware of it, or we are aware of what God has said, but I want to go my own way, so we disobey it. That's a form of suppressing it. And we all do this to some extent. Even the believer, we have the tendency in the flesh, in the old nature, to continue just as the unbeliever. But the Bible encourages us along the lines of renewing our minds, allowing the word to have its way, and to applying it rather than disobeying it. And there's a lot of verses. Verse 18, we're suppressors of the truth. 2.8. And for the sake of time, let me just read some of those. What is not Somebody look up Second Timothy. Somebody look up James real quick. You got James? Bob, Second uh, Timothy, I'll have you read all of those. Second Timothy 2.18, first of all. This is a description of mankind in various forms describing how man suppresses the truth. Second Timothy, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken, and they upset the Okay, gone away. In other words, departing from it. That's apostasy. Three, seven, and eight. 
While you're doing that, I'll read 2.8, which that's in the book of Romans, Romans 2.8. Those who are selfishly ambitious do not obey the truth. They know it, but go against it. Do not obey it. You got 3, 7, and 8. Always learning and never able to to the knowledge of the truth. That's our culture. Always learning, an emphasis on science, but never acknowledging the reality behind it. Keep reading. That's called growing ignorant by degree. Yes. Or calling one an expert who knows more and more about less and less till he knows everything about nothing. (laughs) Keep reading. Just as James and Jambri opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved Opposing the truth. Depraved mind rejecting in regard, rejected in regard. That's the nature of man. You got James, Linda? Oh, James. Um, You can include uh, chapter 4, 2 Timothy as well. We won't read it. Just jot it down, 3 and 4. But same idea. This is what man's nature does. Linda, James. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition, deny the truth. Denying the truth. And it goes on and on. Or even if you're not trying, it's just... Our nature. Just the enemy is out there. Yes. Your, your heart wants to yes. follow and the Lord. Yes. He's, he's hitting you with arrows every way. Absolutely. And wears us so down. Your mind is right. So Absolutely. Very good. And I'll let you read First John 1, 6 through 8 as well. These are all just passages that reinforce the idea. This is what's in man, and this is his nature, apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit working to not only illumine our minds concerning truth, but to obey it. And another thing I found while I was looking for different quotes, this is even an idea in the culture. In other words, it's recognized by even unbelievers. This comes, uh, obviously, from a, a site promoting, preventing disease, apparently. The human tendency, but it's accurate, the human tendency is to believe anything that comforts. In other words, anything that we want to believe and deny what discomforts so that unpleasant truths are simply ignored. That's suppressing the truth. So even the culture, the unbelieving world, knows that this is what we do. This is our tendency. This is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans. We stick our head in the sand, right? How do we suppress it? This might illustrate and bring it close to home, and we're probably going to have to quit here, but... The reality of who we are is we stand guilty before holy God. That is a fundamental truth. This is all men. All men. This is what Paul's going to develop. He's just in the initial stages. All of us are guilty. That's the reality. Mankind guilty before holy God. Secondly, man in his conscience senses that guilt. He senses that there's just something wrong. He suppresses it, however. That's part of the suppressing process. He senses that knowing that if this is true, if this is reality, there is an accountability. There is accountability. In other words, I'm going to have to stand before that holy God, but we don't want that. We sense that there is a coming judgment. All men have this sense. Children have this sense. In fact, what do you observe in children? I'll give you an illustration in a moment. I didn't do that. You didn't? You're the exception. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. Don't blame me. I didn't do that. Yep. Wasn't me. The tendency is to avoid the truths above, avoid the reality of our guilt, avoid what the conscience is telling us concerning our guilt, avoiding the sense in terms of judgment, this, the idea of coming judgment. That's the tendency. That's what we do. We suppress that. The unbeliever does that. God and truth, we flee from that because this makes clear. God makes it clear that we are guilty. This is the book of Romans. But we suppress those truths. Sin and condemnation are clear and we don't want to hear that. So we avoid spiritual truths at all costs. And we classify the Bible as mythical, full of errors, mistranslated, all of these ideas. This is the unbelieving heart because the Bible makes clear. In other words, there is truth. Our hearts tend to uh, suppress it. And the illustration, what do you see in a child that has broken a lamp? What does he do with the evidence? (laughs) That's suppressing the truth. He hides the evidence. What does he do when he's confronted? Blames it on the dog. Blames it on the dog. Puts it somewhere else. Or denies. I wasn't there. What are you talking about? Suppressing the truth. So this is inbred. It's part of who we are. Uh, You don't teach a child how to do this, right? It just comes automatic. This is the nature of man. And then when the evidence is presented and the fingerprints are identified, what do they do? Couldn't help it. It wasn't my fault. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. I'm just a kid. kid. Yeah. The woman you put with you, she made it. Yep, she did it. My brother pushed me and it hit hit me into the lamp. Okay, yeah, we blame it on something else. It's all the fault of whoever's not here to defend us. That's right. Sin distorts truth, absolute truth. And we have a need to renew our minds. We have a need to know the truth from God's word. Now, I was hoping that we would get into verse 19, but we'll save that for next week. We're... It talks some more about truth. In fact, we'll expand this idea of truth. But I think we grasp a fundamental difference between the absolute truth of Scripture and the world's perception of it. And we'll focus on 19. The reasons for God's wrath is that God has revealed himself clearly enough to every human being that every human being stands accountable. And what most human beings do is suppress that idea. Who wants to close for it? Well, this why don't you close first? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this lesson of your word, for your word, word is life. Guide us with your program. We cling to you so that we communicate with God. Because the guidance of your Holy Spirit in every step of Jesus' name. Amen.